It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. What is consciousness, is the question. A light question to start this episode, but made more interesting by a recent study an article that came out that I sent to Whitney a few days ago on popularmechanics.com, which we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's our website, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Anything we mentioned in the podcast today, any pontifications, ruminations, deliberations, excitations, will all be there. It's like you're beginning a Hamilton song. I kind of am, aren't I? Exaltation, simultations, man, I'm patient. Yeah, I kind of am. So consciousness, this is an interesting thing. And this article posits something really interesting. Not new. This is not a new thing. But it's a deeper exploration into the idea of, is the universe a conscious being? Like a gigantically widely dispersed human brain. Like is the universe just one neural net, so to speak? Scientists, of course, have questioned this for a long time of the intersection of consciousness and science. Well, recently, two mathematicians have turned this theory into apparently a workable, crunchable, maybe scalable mathematical model. This is fascinating as hell because the traditional definition of consciousness is, quote, the normal mental condition of waking state of humans characterized by the experience of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, awareness of the external world, and often in humans, but not necessarily in other animals, self-awareness. So scientists don't have a workable model yet as to what consciousness actually is. So we actually don't know what it is, where it comes from, or what it's made of. We don't know why we're self-aware. We don't know why we're able to perceive ourselves or the external world. But, you know, a loophole in all this is we can't, you know, we can't exhaustively say that other organisms, this is where it gets interesting, or inanimate objects don't have consciousness, right? So the article says humans relate to animals and can imagine dogs and cats having some amount of consciousness because we see their facial expressions. We see apparently some sort of emotional relation and how they appear to make decisions. But just because we don't relate to rocks, oceans, trees, the sky, the stars in the same way, doesn't scientifically prove that those objects don't have consciousness. This is fascinating as hell. And it reminds me of two things, Jason. One is the number of times as a vegan, somebody has said like, well, don't plants have feelings too? And anytime someone's asked me that, I've stopped and thought about it. And, you know, it the common, more educated response from a vegan to that tends to be, well, it's about the nervous system, not the consciousness, correct? Or the feelings, The other thing this reminds me of is what we discussed on a recent episode, which was how do you define what's real? And we talked about that book, Alone Together, and how the author, Sherry Turkle, posits the fact that AI and robots could be perceived as real. And it really depends on your definition of what's real. 
Well, I think the idea of consciousness, though, gets convoluted with feelings because I think they're two separate things. I think an emotional life or an emotional response to stimuli is not the same as consciousness. So to your point, Whitney, all these years we've been like, oh, you're murdering carrots and what about the vegetables? It's like, okay, well, here's the thing. There has been research already done, and this was back in the 70s, the book, The Secret Life of Plants, where they hooked up EKG machines and did different stimuli to plants where they spoke kindly to plants, they they stroked the plants lovingly. And then when they took a lighter or a flame to the plant, the EKG machine would go crazy. So there's been this theory that plants have consciousness or the ability to selectively respond to different stimuli. You know, in those tests, they saw that plants responded differently, energetically speaking, or electrically speaking, to a loving gesture versus a gesture that was intended to harm the plant. Does that mean that's consciousness? Some people said, yeah, plants are conscious. This gets tricky, though, because this comes into the intersection, as we talked about on the episode we discussed about AI and robots and consciousness, non-human consciousness. What kind of protections, ethics, morality, rights does that grant a non-human conscious being? Now, I'm not going to say like, we should have sweeping reforms that like rocks and boulders have consciousness. But what I do think is there is a growing movement to say that the natural world ought to have some kind of protections, hence protected forests, national parks, endangered species that have protections around them. So I think on, on, on a basic level as humans, we do acknowledge the right to non-human conscious beings, be those trees, be those animals, to have some sort of basic protections, right? But it, this is a tricky thing because if we're, if we're talking about the universe and, quote, inanimate objects having consciousness, if they actually prove this mathematical model and scale it, Whitney, what if then our car has consciousness? Beyond the plants and the animals in our lives, what, you know, what if this lamp has consciousness, this computer has consciousness? This can get, I mean, this is almost like a weird drug trip if we think about it. Or it leads us to greater awareness. I mean, when you say, what if our car has consciousness? If we get, think along the lines of the AI and robot points that Sherry makes in that book alone together, which again, we discuss more in depth in a previous episode, which we will link to in the show notes along with anything else we mentioned today at wellevator.com. If you haven't been to our website, it's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, along with this article. We'll link to the previous episode. And, you know, someone like Elon Musk, who you brought up, I believe, in that episode too, Jason, he created the car that I drive, the Tesla. And there are times when, <laughs> like, I feel a connection to that car. Actually, most of the time I feel it on some some level, but but I have like a love for it. And it, I felt that towards Apple products. Like I feel like they both Tesla and Apple have tapped into the emotions of a human being, but they're creating things that are so part of our lives, Jason, that they almost feel like a companion animal. I mean, think about it. Your phone keeps you from feeling lonely in some cases, keeps you from feeling bored. It's stimulating you. That is an experience much like what it feels like to be with another human being or an animal. And 
the animal part reminds me of in the movie Avatar, you know, when they hook their braids or their like whatever tails, whatever it is, into the horses or or whatever creatures they're riding, horse-like creatures, and they become unified and connected and they can, they join together. And (laughs) as silly as it sounds, I almost feel something of that level with the Tesla. And maybe that's unique to me. I just feel bonded to my car, but it's almost like a level of appreciation for it too, Jason, where like, I care for it. And sometimes I think, oh, it's because it it was a lot of money and I'm paying for it. Like I want to take very good care of it so that like it doesn't get damaged and cause me more money. I want to appreciate it. As I've talked about in the past, I want to have gratitude for the material objects from like more of a financial privilege perspective, right? Because it's a privilege to have something that expensive. But also the more you're expressing this, the more that I think, wow, like, is there this other level where I feel like I'm connected to it? You know, I name my cars and sometimes I pat them like almost like I would with a dog, you know, and like, I'm not even fully conscious of it a lot of the times, but the more that they develop, the more that they do start to feel so integrated in their life that they're not as different as having a companion. Yeah, that's interesting, the part about naming too, because I think we have this interesting desire as humans to anthropomorphize so many things in our lives, not just to try and relate to them on some probably emotional or level of consciousness, but interesting studies have shown that whether it was like, you know, babies in like an orphanage, like infants or animals in a kennel, or you're saying cars, that by naming them and giving them a name, there's been shown a deeper level of care and relationship that is built when we name babies, when we name cars, when we name animals. There's something about putting a name on something that creates a deeper bond and a deeper level, I think, of connection and emotional relationship. We can link to some of those studies because I know they're out there. We'll link to those in the show notes as well. I think this discussion about consciousness, as, as we go on the article, Whitney, there's a author named uh, David Crooks who wrote a book called All About Space. And he said about this study about the universe being a conscious being, this claims that consciousness is inherent even in the tiniest pieces of matter, an idea that suggests the fundamental building blocks of reality all have conscious experience. Crucially, it implies that consciousness could be found in everything throughout the universe. Holy shit. This is super interesting because they're implying that almost human consciousness could be algorithmic or perhaps non-algorithmic. So an algorithm, to define it, is a series of predictable steps to reach an outcome. And in the study of human philosophy, this idea plays a big part in questions, okay, ready for this, about free will versus determinism. Are human brains simply cranking out math-like processes that are telescoped in advance, or is something really wild quantumly happening that allows us true free will, meaning that we have the ability to make meaningfully intentional different decisions that affect our lives? This is a big thing, right? Because If consciousness is unpredictable quantum phenomena that doesn't conform to physics that we understand, then we don't even know what the hell we're looking at, right? So if this is kind of like scratching your head and making us feel uncomfortable, well, I think it should because we literally don't know where consciousness comes from. We don't know what it's made from. But 
interestingly, right, these questions are essential because if we could answer and we could really understand how the universe operates, how consciousness operates, then we would ask, right, whether or not humans do or do not have free will. And this has massive moral implications, right? Because if the universe is just one giant algorithm and we don't have free will, right? Because that, that's part of this study. What if the universe consciousness is just a giant program that's running us and we actually have no control over that program? Then what do we do about criminals? What do we do about rapists? What do we do about murderers? What do we do about people we punish in society? I mean, this has mass, think about it, Whitney. If scientifically we were able to prove that all consciousness is just a program that we can't alter or control, then how do we regard those aspects of society? I mean, really, this would change how we relate to everything. But perhaps that would be really good for us and humbling for our egos Coming from this perspective of opening my eyes over the past year to issues like racism and really reflecting on how some people perceive themselves as being elite and above and more important than other human beings. But certainly we can feel that way about other animals. I mean, we talked about in that episode with Lindsay Rubin about pets and, quote, ownership. And how that term feels really strange because it's like we are masters and we are, in, you know, controlling. And sometimes when I think about having a dog, the, I can't remember if it was on TikTok. There's some conversation I saw recently about like, in a way, do our animals just experience Stockholm syndrome? Like they're forced into living with us and then their whole lives become dependent on us and like are they really happy do they really love us like you know you've said before jokingly jason like i'm just a food source my animals don't love me and like there were many times that i kind of denied that and i was like that's ridiculous but then when you think about it on another level like what if our animals don't actually experience love for us what if wagging their tails and licking us like I don't know if we talked about this on the show, Jason, but I feel like we might have how animals will manipulate us into giving them what they want from us, you know? So there have been studies based on how dogs look at you in order to get what they need. And I see that as a form of communication. My dog does tons of nuanced behavior from to let me know when she's thirsty or hungry, needs to go outside, wants something in particular, you know, and we've created this language between us. But there are also times where she seems dissatisfied. And I don't know if I'm projecting myself onto her. So all of this to be said, it's humbling if you step back and say, wait a second, what if A, I'm not, I stop experiencing life from this place of control and dominance and hierarchy and that's another thing that I've learned through being vegan. It's like part of that passion and, and that compassion is recognizing that like we all have to work together in sync and harmony. And that's why it's important to pay attention to animals and plants and like how we're affecting things. And I think, Jason, what you're describing may be an important turning point for us. Human beings seem to be so afraid of AI and robots because like we see movies like Terminator with them taking over. But is our fear just 
the balance is, is different than we've been used to because we've been in charge this whole time. What if it's time for somebody else to be in charge? And that sounds frightening, but is it frightening, Jason, because of all the awful things that we've done to one another? I mean, the cruelty that continues to go on between human beings and other animals, like it's sickening. Some of the things that are going on right now in 2021, we look back at things that happened during World War II as so awful. We look at movies like The Handmaid's Tale. It's also based on the book, right? But one of the most important things that Margaret Atwood said about that book is that everything that she wrote in the original, I'm not sure if it's true with the adapted series, everything was based on reality and it was just the way she combined the story. And so that story is horrific because it hits close to home. And we're seeing a lot of that stuff happen in 2021. And it's often about another human being think they have the right to treat another creature a certain way. And if we recognize, Jason, that consciousness is different than we think it is, like perhaps that's a way for us to learn that we're not better than anything else that has consciousness in this world as we know it. Well, I I think it could be a tremendous turning point in terms of speciesism and how we regard the natural world, period, the world in general. I mean, it would reframe everything into your point of us realizing we don't have as much control or free will as we thought if the mathematical model goes in that direction, right? If it goes in the direction of determining that consciousness does have free will and we do have the ability to alter the outcome of our life based on our choices. I mean, it's really kind of like a fork in the road. Maybe it's somewhere in the center. We have no idea. Again, we don't know what consciousness is. We don't know where it comes from, how it originates in the human brain. We know none of it. We don't even know what we are. Like, I just want to, I just want to go there. Like, oh, we're homo sapiens. Well, that's just some shit we made up. We need to realize something here. So many of the absolutes we regard as reality as human beings are just shit we made up. It doesn't mean that is a universal reality, right? It's like, I mean, we could trip out existentially on that all day long. We, I don't want to fill that up. But, but the idea here also, I think, is that, you know, I think we exert dominance as human beings over the natural world, animals, plant life, the environment, the seas, the fish, everything, because we have deemed because we are, we have bigger brains. We have a different form of consciousness. We have language. We have tools. We can make barbecue grilled sausages and wipe our own asses that we're somehow greater. We're the crown of creation, right? This kind of thinking, this hubristic thinking that we are the crown of creation, that we have, you know, to get biblical for a second, we have dominion over the natural world, which some people have misinterpreted as domination. People have misconstrued the definition of dominion, okay, to mean we can dominate. And now we're in a situation where, you know, The world is in a very, 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 you know, human life may or may not be able to sustain itself another hundred years, depending on what models you believe. My point is this. If this is proven that all objects in reality have some level of consciousness, to your point, Whitney, it might take us off our our self-assigned perches as the kings of the universe, which we are not, in my opinion. Some people go, well, are you saying, Jason, that, that, that human life is equal to animal life? Because I, I already know, you know, some people are, are you saying that 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 human life is equal to a tree? 
I'm not here to debate that. What I'm here to debate is that I think destroying thousands of acres of rainforest and destroying the natural world, raping the oceans and killing hundreds of billions of animals a year is probably not the best choice if we want to sustain conscious life on this planet. But here we are trying to get our stock prices up and make sure everyone's rich and fed and, you know, have your BLT sandwiches and your oil and, you know, I mean, I'm just going to say this. We're fucking destroying the planet because why? We think we own it. We think we own it because we've got the biggest brains and we've got tools and seatbelts and toilet paper. Like until the all this uh, UF, what is it called now? Not a UFO, but a. Oh, UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon until they land. Right. I mean, no, to your point, though, Whitney, here's the thing. themselves. Right, right. Here's the deal, though. Right. History has categorically not been very kind to other civilizations. I mean, you know, I bring up like Christopher Columbus and when the Europeans finally reached the Americas. Okay. You had a quote, more technologically advanced human civilization in the Europeans with different weapons, different technology that didn't go very well. So I'm not saying it's going to be a bad thing, but historically based on what's happened with humanity, if aliens do reveal themselves and they do have more advanced technology and weaponry and communication, history bodes that's not going to be a great situation for us. But maybe it needs to happen so we can be shown we're not the shit because humanity's walking around the earth and the universe thinking like we're the shit. We're going to colonize Mars. Cool. So we can fuck up another planet. Great. I know I'm sound morose right now. I don't. I hope this gets proven, Whitney. I hope it gets proven mathematically, scientifically, on a scalable, universal level that everything does have consciousness so we can stop acting like shitheads. <laughs> I do. I really do. And have more compassion, have more understanding, have more equanimity so we can treat not only other humans, but animals, trees, nature, the environment, the world as a living, breathing, conscious entity. I hope in our lifetime this gets proven. I do. Me too. I mean, it, it certainly would be interesting. And I think if we step back and examine it from what we need, and, and also historically, I may get this wrong, but I believe that the average, I don't know if it's an empire. I got to look this up. It's like the average length of, do you know what I'm talking about, Jason? It's 200 years. Yes. I've read these statistics too, that massive globalist empires have a very similar lifespan throughout human recorded history. And the U.S. is very close to the end of its reign. Yeah, I think it's 200 to 250. And it's it can be called an empire, a civilization, democracy. Like the, for example, one, one thing I pulled up, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through a specific sequence, which let me pull this up. It's a link to something else to read the full quote from Alexander Fraser Teitler. I don't really know anything about this person. So always be mindful about where your references come from. But let's just use this as a subject to speak about. These nations have progressed through this sequence from bondage to spiritual faith from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to apathy, from apathy to dependence, 
from dependence back into bondage. Damn. Doesn't it seem that we are in that cycle? Doesn't it seem that humanity is really at the end of that cycle? When you say that, Whitney, and use that framework to describe not just the United States as a global superpower, but I would say human civilization on the planet right now, we have become slaves to technology. We have become slaves to convenience. We have become slaves to our greedy, insatiable appetites for more, better, different. Like That's an incredible framework. And I want to read the beginning of it because it's equally interesting. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. I need to go look this up and better understand who this guy is in more context, because again, (laughs) he could be someone that I don't agree with whatsoever. (laughs) Does his name ring a bell to you? The crazy thing is about these quotes, Jason, is this guy lived from 1747 to 1813. Like, this is old information. This is an old quote. He was a Scottish-born British lawyer and writer. And I believe these quotes came from essays that he was writing. And that one specifically came from, I guess this was a quote most notably being circulated after the 2000 U.S. presidential election. So this is fascinating. I mean, I'd have to dig into it further, but it just seems like people typically use it when they're not thrilled, which for those who don't know off the top of their head, (laughs) in the U.S. presidential election, that was between George Bush and Al Gore. So maybe it was Democrats that were disappointed, if I'm better understanding this, or maybe this was something that Republicans were using to express some of these things. And then when I click, this is I'm going through a Wikipedia page. It did bring me to Snopes. And there's a picture of this guy here. So I'm going to go dig in a little bit further to see. um, There's like a mostly false rating on Snopes. So that's why you got to be mindful about what you read and the context in which it came from. I guess this quote became circulating in 2000. And then in 2004, it saw a strong resurgent in 2008 and was circulated in 2012. Like, I guess it gets circulated a lot when it comes to our elections, but I'm not quite sure where the Snopes misinformation comes from. So I'll link to this for anyone who wants to read it further and better understand the source. Nonetheless, I think that what that quote and that framework highlights to me is the cyclical nature of history and how things might appear to be in different forms. But if we talk about government and empires, the rise and fall of empires, it seems to be pretty formulaic. If you look at recorded civilized human society, it seems to be formulaic, which I think goes back to the argument of what if we're just living in a giant algorithm? What if we're just living in a giant algorithm? And what we've done We are either blessed or cursed, depending on how you perceive it, to just keep repeating the same things in history with different players and different structures, but the outcomes are the same. I mean, if one is a historian, one could surmise that if you look at the rise and fall of empires. It's kind of the same shit, 
playing out the exact same way in different points in history with different technologies and different people, which, I mean, if everything is just a cycle and everything is just an algorithm, then again, maybe we don't have free will. Maybe we're just playing out the program, which could sound disappointing and horrifying to some people and maybe liberating to others. Again, it depends kind of on your on your take on this. I want to go back really quickly, though, Whitney, to some uh, some points about consciousness in this article and approaching consciousness from a quantum effect. The researchers I mentioned looking at this around the world at University of Oxford, the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy, and they're looking at how our brain's microprocesses can be used to model things about the whole universe, that our brains are essentially a scaled down model of the giant universal brain. And this theory is called Integrated Information Theory, IIT, and it's an abstract, super crazy quantum mathematical form of the philosophy that we've been talking about here. And so in this IIT theory, consciousness is literally everywhere, but it accumulates in higher concentrations in places where it's needed to glue together different related systems. So this means like the human body is jam-packed with a ton of systems that need to interrelate so your body works fine. So there's a lot of consciousness, or what they call it in the structure of IIT is called phi, P-H-I, that can be calculated. And so you think about all the parts of a human or animal brain that need to work together, like to form a picture or have a sense memory of an apple in your mind's eye. So they're saying that in this structure, this IIT, this framework of consciousness, is a value that can be calculated if you know about the complexity of what you're studying. So since, you know, our brains have countless interrelated systems, then if we if we know that, then the universe must have infinite systems like this. And that's where consciousness accumulates, and if that is so, then the universe must have an incalculable amount of phi. So this algorithm and studying these quantum particles creating consciousness in the universe they're trying to distill this into a mathematical model, which sounds like crazy, right? So if you think about like, I think, therefore I am, then imagine these genius mathematicians and scientists turning that phrase into a workable formula where you substitute in a hundred different number values and end up with a specific answer to I am. Like we'll finally be able to answer what we are. That's why this has massive implications, because we, if we have more clarity, Whitney, on what we are, where we came from, and what consciousness is, that will change our entire relationship to life itself. That's exciting to me. That's exciting. Whether it will happen in our lifetime or not, I guess we're going to find out. We got to stick around, right? Because that literally would change everything if we realize how deeply connected, not just intellectually, but like on a quantum level, knowing scientifically proven that we are connected to every single thing, then we're definitely going to be patting our cars. We'd be like, great job. Great job, Bessie. Great job, Bean. Great job, Ube. You're doing a great job. Like, I hope that we would be much kinder, as I said, more compassionate, more connected to everything around us. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't take this proving this mathematical model to do that, Wit. Maybe we could just start being kinder and more connected and compassionate just because, I don't know, it feels good. You know, somebody, I, I want to wait till it's scientifically proven. Maybe we could just start doing it right now. How about that? <laughs> I love that you remembered the name of my car, which for those that don't know this, which you probably don't know, because I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in the podcast. As I mentioned, 
I have a tendency to name my cars. And my current car, the Tesla Model 3's name is Ube, which is a purple, is it a yam technically? Yeah, it's a root vegetable. Mm -hmm. And is it the same thing as taro or are they two different things? They're two different things. Hmm. Okay. Well, then I, I was going to make a connection to to this as like a little <laughs> teaser for our second podcast. That's right. If you haven't heard us mention this already, we have another podcast called This Hits the Spot. And on the third episode of This Hits the Spot, talk about this taro bubble tea oatmeal, which is also purple, much like ube is purple. So a little plug for that show. It is a private podcast exclusively for our newsletter subscribers, which is free, and our patrons, which you can support both podcasts, this one and this hits the spot, for as little as $2 a month, which is really helpful for us since uh, we have some expenses behind the scenes to keep all of this rolling. We have a team, we have software, we have our own time and energy that goes into all of this, and we wanted to add some extra goodies for our loyal newsletter subscribers. And when you subscribe to the show, you get other free resources from wellevator.com. So actually, if you go to wellevator.com slash free resources, we have multiple ebooks and videos and now the podcast, which actually should add to that page, Jason. I didn't even think to do that until this moment. And This Hits the Spot is a fun, shorter show, although this episode has been shorter than most of our episodes. It's kind of cool to do a short episode of this might get uncomfortable every once in a while. This hits the spot averages around 20, 20 to 25 minutes maximum, which is shorter than our average length of the show around 90 minutes. I am assuming that you have nothing else to add on this subject, Jason, but I'm getting a nod, <laughs> which is a good opportunity to mention for our listeners that we do have a YouTube channel. And our YouTube channel has most episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable that you can watch. So you can see our facial expressions, body movements. You can see our guests for our guest episodes. If we have products that we're shouting out like that tarot oatmeal that I just showed, it's worth checking out the YouTube channel and subscribing. And, you know, they're also in our show notes at wellevator.com. And FYI, This Hits the Spot also has videos, but that is a Perkit exclusive for our patrons because we want to acknowledge those people that have been so generous with us. And really, $2 a month adds up over time for us, but adds up to only $24 for you a year. And you can choose to add more if you'd like, but we are very grateful for any financial contribution. And with that said... Our show notes, as we mentioned, at wellevator.com, this entire episode transcript, all of the links to anything we've mentioned here, we have it all in one place for you, along with, like I said, the video and links to the other episodes. We just want to make it easy for you to check it out, to share with people, to find us. We really appreciate you. And we've linked to the book Alone Together, which we talked about in the previous episode. There's a wonderful website that we link to called Bookshop which you will also see in the sidebar when you go to our podcast section of our website. We're so grateful for that amazing resource, which helps support people of color, non-white people. They have a very big focus on underrepresented authors, which I really appreciate. And it's a wonderful way to support local bookshops. So check them out if you're going to get any books that we recommend. We have linked to that. We try not to link to Amazon, but we still admittedly do 
because it is a place a lot of people enjoy shopping at. So we're trying to meet you where you're at. Anything else that you'd like to add, Jason, before we wrap up today? Nada colada. That's a wrap. For you, dear listener, if you want to dig into this idea of consciousness, shoot us an email. We always love your musings, your perspectives, your thoughts, your feelings. We are available at hello at wellevator.com, or you can always shoot us a direct message on Instagram, because this is certainly not a subject that can be condensed into 40 short minutes. So until next time, stay cool, stay compassionate, stay connected. We love you. We appreciate your support. We'll be back with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable Soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.